the scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 7, beginning at verse 26 and following. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did, not, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. <coughs> For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Pat. Let's uh, ask God's help as we uh, think about the passage today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that you are a God who speaks, a God who reveals yourself, 
not only in your Son, Jesus Christ, but in the written word which points us to him. And so as we uh, look at this passage today, may it be an encouragement to us, uh, a resource for us as we seek to live for you this week. We pray that uh, for all of us, no matter where we are in our journey of faith, that this would be a significant time because we hear the living God speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, David Gray is an English singer-songwriter, perhaps best known for his album White Ladder from about uh, 20 20 years ago now. But a couple of weeks ago, Gray released a a great new album. I have to call it great because for no other reason, the second song on the album is called Dunleary, which is the name of the town south of Dublin where we were living before we moved to Kennet Square. But the actual title of the album is Skellig. The name Skellig isn't familiar to some of you. Uh, You may know it as Planet Achu from Star Wars Episodes 7 and 8, the birthplace of the Jedi Order and Luke Skywalker's home. But in real life, uh, Skellig's full name is Skellig Michael, and it's a rocky outcrop that lies less than 10 miles from the southwest coast of Ireland and which for hundreds of years was inhabited by monks in a, minis- in a monastery built there in the 6th century. And when David Gray has been interviewed about the inspiration behind this new album, he's spoken of the wonder and amazement at a group of people setting up a monastery in such incredibly inhospitable conditions, building stone beehives on the island in which to live. Gray said, pondering that idea, how close to God could you possibly wish to be? That's an interesting question. I mean, just think about this for a moment. I I can't imagine that life in the West of Ireland in the 6th century could have been particularly noisy and loud and rambunctious. Certainly nothing compared to life in the 21st century Western world. But it obviously provided a sufficient distraction that these monks were willing to move into the middle of a dangerous sea onto dangerous rocks where resources would have been scarce, all so that they might seek to draw closer to God. In all my years as a Christian, there have certainly been uh, places where I can identify uh, as favorite locations to go for a spiritual retreat day, for a sabbatical, for a study day, spots in Ireland, spots here in the US, some spots elsewhere, But our passage today is going to help us understand that drawing close to God is no longer tied to a place as it once was. It's tied now to a person. That is to say, there is no location on this planet, no country, no city, no church, no mountain, no shoreline, no golf course, and for the first recipients of this this, uh, sermon, no temple where God is more present than in any other location. Drawing near to God is all about drawing near through a person, through Jesus. And that's what this whole middle section of the book of Hebrews is all about. Chapters 7 to 10, if we're honest, is is where modern readers often get bogged down as they read through Hebrews, because as as we noted last week, we're dealing with themes that frankly are unfamiliar and foreign to many of us. A priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, tabernacles, covenants, sacrifices. We might wonder as we read through these chapters if they have any relevance for us today as they did for the first hearers of this sermon uh, some 2,000 years ago. 
And I want to assure all of us that it has huge relevance for us. And to try to demonstrate that, before we get into the details of chapter 8, I want to read to you the preacher's exhortation that comes at the very end of this long middle section. Based on everything that he's covered in chapters 7 through 10, here's the preacher's application in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, we're going to look at this passage in more detail in a few weeks' time, but for now, I just want to kind of take a, a big picture a view of what the preacher's saying here. He says, therefore, based on what I've just covered in the previous three and a half chapters, let us do three things, he says. I wonder if you noticed what the three things were. Verse 22, let us draw near in faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 24, let us stir one another on to love. Or to summarize it even more, it's a call to faith, hope, and love, which is one of the New Testament writer's favorite shorthands for what it means to be a Christian. Hebrews 10, 19 to 24 is basically a call for us to keep on keeping on living as Christians. What will equip you and me to do that? everything that the preacher has covered in chapters 7 through 10. In other words, what we're looking at today and in the next few weeks is not this Theology 601 graduate level course for the really, really serious Christians. It's for every single one of us who would call ourselves Christians and every single one of us who might be thinking about or wondering about or interested about what Christianity is all about. Remember, this, this preacher is giving this sermon to a congregation of Christians who are just worn out, they're exhausted, they're weary, they're tired of the spiritual struggle, they're tired of walking the walk such that many of them are considering taking a walk, that is, leaving the community and falling away from their faith. And the preacher is wanting to equip them just to keep on living as Christians, and these chapters that we're looking at are key to his equipping. We had to summarize these chapters in one word. It's actually pretty easy. You might actually guess it yourself. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And in chapter 8, the preacher focuses our attention in particular on this idea that I mentioned just a moment ago, that drawing near to God is not through a place. It's through a person, through Jesus. And he's going to explain that to us by showing us two things that Jesus has brought. First of all, he's brought a better ministry. Secondly, he's brought a better covenant. Drawing near to God is not through a place, but through a person, through Jesus, who's brought a better ministry and a better covenant. Before we look at that first point, let me just give us a whistle-stop recap of what we saw last week about Jesus's better priesthood. We'll do that by reading the last three verses of chapter 7, which I had Pat read this morning, but we didn't actually address 
in last week's sermon on chapter 7. Let me read those to you, 7, 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Preacher here lays out five ways that Jesus' priesthood is better than the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood. For the sake of time, I'm just going to list them here. First of all, Jesus is sinless. No other priest could say that. Second, because Jesus is sinless, he has no need to offer sacrifices for himself, but instead could offer himself as a sacrifice for others. Third, Jesus' sacrifice of himself, the preacher says, was once for all. It was a sacrifice that never needed to be repeated. For while all other priests were appointed by the law in their weakness, Jesus was appointed by a divine oath as a perfect son. We were looking at that last week. And then fifth, Jesus' priesthood is better because his ministry is forever. He never needs to be replaced. He has this indestructible life because of the resurrection. So that Jesus will be there for you long after everyone you depend on is gone. In the midst of all the uncertainty of our present lives, surely this is an assurance that can encourage us that here is someone who is committed 100% to help you forever. Jesus has a better priesthood. Well, then moving into chapter 8, we come to our first main point this morning, that drawing near to God is through Jesus because Jesus brings a better ministry. Look at verses 1 to 6 again. Now, the main point, and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, anytime the author of a book or a letter or a sermon tells you, okay, I'm about to tell you the main point of what I'm writing about, it's it's wise to pay attention. And here is one such case. The preacher says, here's the main point in what we're talking about here. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. One key to understanding this section, it comes in verse 5, when the preacher tells us that the Old Testament priest served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Everything about the old system of priestly sacrifices was a shadow of the reality. So when God gave Moses a pattern for the priestly sacrificial system, he didn't just make it kind of out of the air up, up on the spot for the Jewish people. He patterned it after the glorious reality in heaven. But the preacher's reminding his listeners that with Jesus 
and his better ministry, the shadow has been replaced with the reality that cast the shadow. So the tabernacle and the temple were a shadow. The Old Testament priesthood was a shadow. The animal sacrifices were a shadow. The feast and the dietary laws were a shadow. But when Christ came, the shadows began to fall away. Why? Because Christ himself is the reality. So in verse 1 here, one great thing about the reality, which is greater than the shadow, is that our high priest is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. No Old Testament priest could say that, could ever say that. For one thing, no Old Testament priest ever sat because their ministry was never completed. There was always more to do. But even bigger than that, our high priest, we're told here, has the place of honor beside God the Father and deals with him directly on our behalf. He's loved and respected by God. He's constantly with God. So the point is that Jesus' ministry does not involve the shadows of curtains and bowls and tables and tassels and sheep and goat and pigeons. Because Jesus is a high priest, it still does involve an offering, but as the preacher says in verse 3, but the offering is of himself. It's of his, his life, his own sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. But as that offering was a once-for-all sacrifice, as we just heard in chapter 7, Jesus' ministry is the final, ultimate reality. Now, this actually has huge ramifications for what, what we're doing right now, huge ramifications for the nature of Christian worship. You can see how for the first hearers of this sermon, as they had left behind their Jewish practices and ways and become Christians, that their entire understanding and experience of, of worship had been turned on its head. They had previously treated the shadows as if they were reality, and now they've just discovered that the shadows were just shadows of a greater reality. Since the reality had arrived in Jesus, the shadows had become, in the words of the preacher in verse 13, obsolete. They had served a definite purpose while the reality hadn't yet arrived. Indeed, we can say they were good and helpful shadows because they were from God. But with the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the entire worship life of the Old Testament was now radically refocused on Jesus himself. So in the New Testament, all the focus is on the reality of the glory of Christ, not on the shadow and the copy of the religious objects and forms. And that helps explain why and how the New Testament is stunningly indifferent to such externals. You know, there's no blueprint in the New Testament for what this building should look like or for what I should wear. Some people might think it would be helpful, but for, or for worship times or for length of sermons. You might think that would be helpful too. Or for worship music, we don't have any of that. In fact, the act of, of getting together as Christians in the New Testament to sing or to pray or to hear the word of God, it's never even actually called worship. And that's why we try to refer to what we do here Sunday by Sunday not as worship per se, but as corporate worship, as gathered worship, because all of life is now to be worship. Because drawing near to God is not through a place anymore, it's through a person, through Jesus. So that what we do here on a Sunday morning is we come together to worship together. Our scattered worship the rest of the week becomes for this short time gathered worship. 
But besides the basic elements of scripture reading, singing, praying, sermon, sacraments, the New Testament is silent on the externals of our gathered worship. This Old Testament to New Testament worship paradigm shift also explains some of the other language we use and don't use. We don't speak here of our singers as they lead us in song, leading us into the presence of God, as you might hear said in other churches. That's nothing to do with our singers. It's simply because we don't need any human to lead us into the presence of God because it's Jesus who leads us into the presence of God. Similarly, this is not an altar at the front here. This is a table, a communion table. Why? Because we don't need an altar because there are no more sacrifices to be made. Jesus has made the final sacrifice for sin on the altar of the cross once and for all. So that drawing near to God is through Jesus because Jesus brings this better ministry. Secondly, though, drawing near to God is through Jesus because Jesus brings a better covenant. Verse 6, the preacher summarizes this whole section rather succinctly when he tells us that Christ has secured a better ministry and a better covenant which has been built on better promises. The preacher addressed those better promises back in chapter 6, as we saw. But this mention of a better covenant leads him into an explanation of what will we'll take us through the rest of the chapter. Look with me first at verses 7 to 9 again. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The preacher is going to show us that the beauty of this better covenant that Jesus has brought by comparing and contrasting it to the first covenant. When he speaks about the first covenant and the second covenant, he's talking about the old Mosaic covenant as the first versus the new and better covenant as the second. And that the preacher wants to show how the old covenant had flaws. Not in its essence. It couldn't be faulty in that sense because the law was a reflection of God's own character. It had flaws in its inability to justify and and renew faulty people. People who couldn't keep the law. People like the people of Israel. People like you and me. First covenant was flawed in its inability to bring God's purposes to completion. It lacked the resources to renew the people wasn't going to be enough for God to simply take away the shadows. It wouldn't work if God just set Christ up as the great reality and then left it up to us to try to know him, to love him, to follow him. Because in and of ourselves, we can't do that. So God took it upon himself to graciously provide a second covenant, a new covenant, which would literally go to the heart of the matter, promising and providing men and women boys and girls, with a new heart that would enable them to keep the covenant. To parse out this, what this better covenant would do, the preacher goes back to the, the key Old Testament prophecy of the coming new covenant, and he quotes it in its entirety in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Here's an interesting fact for no extra cost this morning. This is actually the longest quotation from the Old Testament 
in the New Testament. Put that in your back pocket for your next Bible trivia quiz. You might need it. Jeremiah's prophecy here explains how, how the new covenant is better than the old covenant, and he does so by laying out four new covenant blessings. We want to go through each one. First of all, in the new covenant, obedience is no longer impossible. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. The problem with the old, old covenant was that it was patently external. Its laws were written on stone. They provided no internal power to live them out. And to be sure, there was great benefit in knowing the law. If you uh, persevered this week through uh, through our daily prayer project, Old Testament readings from Psalm 119. Well done. But you'll have seen how, how the psalmist testifies over and over again to the beauty of the law, to the benefits of knowing the law. But still, something radical was needed if we were to be able to keep that law. A writing of the law in the heart, the, Jeremiah says, which would be a reversal of the spiritual reality in Jeremiah's day, in which the sin of the people, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 1, the sin of the people was written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond engraved on the tablet of the heart. That's a problem. God's promise here, therefore, was to transform what seemed like an irre irrevocably rebellious nature so that our hardened disobedience would be replaced by an obedience to God's command. We need new hearts with God's law written on those hearts. And through this better covenant, God promised such new hearts. I read this week that Dr. Christian Bernard, the first surgeon ever to perform a heart transplant, once asked one of his patients, Philip Blayberg, somewhat impulsively, would you like to see your old heart? Blayberg said, yes. And so at 8 p.m. on a subsequent evening, the two men went together to a room in a Cape Town, South Africa hospital. Dr. Barnard went to a cupboard. He took down a glass container. He handed it to Blayberg, and inside that container was Blayberg's old heart. And for a moment, Blayberg just stood there stunned into silence, the first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his hands. Finally, he spoke and for 10 minutes plied the doctor with all sorts of technical questions. And then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container and said, so this is my old heart that caused all those problems. He handed it back, he turned away, and he left it forever. And it's that sort of departure from our old hardened hearts that the new covenant offers to us that in this better covenant, with the law written on our hearts, obedience is no longer impossible. Second new covenant blessing, God is no longer a stranger. Verse 10 again, I will be their God and they will be my people. That was, that's been God's goal all along, stated around 25 times in the Bible. You see that statement made all the way back in Exodus, all the way forward to Revelation. It's a reminder that God is after relationship. He's not standoffish. He's not aloof. He wants to be in a tender relationship with us. And having dealt with the problem of our hard hearts, he's now made that relationship possible. 
Here it's almost like God's making marriage vows to us. I will be their God, meaning that he, he gives himself to us and you will be my people. They shall be my people, means he ta- meaning he takes us for himself. And when that happens, you discover that everything you truly realize you need in life is found in him. It's not just about knowing about God. This is about knowing him personally. And that changes everything. It changes not only the way we relate to him, but it changes the way we relate to one another, how you look at the world. God is no longer a stranger. Third new covenant blessing. Verse 11, evangelism is no longer internal. Look at this verse. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In the Old Covenant community, membership was, in a sense, merely external. It was by the mark of circumcision. Physical circumcision was always intended to be a sign of internal circumcision of the heart. But without the new heart, without the writing of the law on the heart, the the sign couldn't point beyond itself. But within that old covenant community, God had preserved for himself a small remnant of people who did know the Lord, who trusted in God. Preacher's going to highlight some of those people when we get to Hebrews chapter 11. But because this, these people were just a small remnant, it meant that Israel was something of a, of a mixed multitude in which the remnant had to call the nation itself continually to repentance and faith. So that evangelism was internal in that sense. But under the new covenant, everyone who is part of the covenant community, that is everyone who is by definition has the law written on their hearts, who has a relationship with God, everyone knows the Lord, therefore, from the least of them to the greatest. We don't, or at least we shouldn't have to, evangelize internally within the covenant community of the church because the prerequisite of being a member of a local church is that you're a Christian. That's why we asked Bo and Danny the questions that I asked them this morning as they became members. So that now our evangelism isn't internal, now it's outward. Our witness is is no longer to one's neighbor within the covenant community, but from the covenant community, the church, into the world. That incidentally also helps explain and helps us understand why, as we noted earlier, that the New Testament is, is thoroughly indifferent to the externals of gathered worship. Because you see, the New Testament is this missionary document. The message of this book is to be carried to every people on this earth, and lived out in every culture in this world. And that's a huge benefit of our high priests coming and and ending the old covenant sacrifices and tabernacles and priesthood. That God has now decentralized our worship. God's now gone global. So that while the Old Testament was mainly an invitation to come and see, kind of everything centered in one place, the, the New Testament mainly is a call to Go and tell. Evangelism is no longer internal, but outward. And then fourth and final new covenant blessing, and indeed the foundation of of the other three is this. Sins are no longer remembered. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
It is said that the first century Roman philosopher, Seneca the Elder, would impress his students by asking each member of a class of about 200 students to recite a line of poetry, and then he would recite all the lines they had quoted in reverse order from last to first. I mean, that's some memory. Some of us can't even remember what we had for breakfast this morning. But, but Seneca's memory was nothing compared to God's because God never forgets anything. Or more specifically, he cannot forget unless he wills to do so. In the Bible, when God remembers things or events or people, it's, it's not just a mental exercise. It's a way of indicating that he's about to act. He's about to intervene. He's going to do something as a result of what he's seen. For God to remember our sin no more, therefore, is, is not God getting a sudden dose of amnesia. It is that God in his grace has determined not to act as our sins deserve. He's determined to forgive them. Because Jesus, our high priest, has made the sacrifice on the cross once and for all for our sin. And so for God, it's been dealt with. It never is going to be brought up again. So as the Old Testament prophet Micah put it, God throws all our sins into the depths of the sea. And as the writer Corey ten Boom added, he then puts up a sign that says, no fishing. If you come to God through Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, forgotten, forever. Sins are no longer remembered, which we read here then results in our obedience being no longer impossible, in God no longer being a stranger, and evangelism being no longer in internal. It's a better covenant. You know, at the end of one of the interviews that David Gray gave about his new album, Skellig, the, the interviewer asked him if, as well as taking musical inspiration from a set of remote islands in the Atlantic, if Gray had also taken a moment to think about the spirituality of those monks who had moved there in the sixth century. And Gray replied, I've not flirted with religion in any sense. I can't find my way in. And the preacher to the Hebrews would say to Gray, David, 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 the, the way in couldn't be more straightforward. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the preacher says the same thing to any of us trying to find our way in. It's Jesus. The way in is Jesus. Because drawing near to God is not through a place. It's through a person. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gracious God you are to us. That while our hearts were hard with sin, our hearts just as hard as those of the people of Israel to whom Jeremiah was speaking. That you're a God who came and changed our hearts and wrote your law in our hearts, created for your people, a people who can obey you, who know you as Father, who have a mandate to proclaim the good news to this world, all on the basis of our sins being forgiven. We thank you and praise you. We pray that we would pursue you and love you and serve you 
because of what you have done for us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.